I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding and applying the wisdom of the Bible in your own context. In this season, The Problem of Good and Evil, we're digging into the topic of good and evil, finding new and maybe unexpected ways to think about it and respond to it. Let's get started. In the episodes of season two, The Problem of Good and Evil, we discuss some heavy topics and instances of evil that can be disturbing, especially for those who've experienced related trauma. We advise caution among listeners. If you find that you need help or support as a result of listening to this podcast, please consult the resources listed in the show notes. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Discover Your Roots. Episode five, we are talking about why is evil scary? Why are we so scared of evil? So where do we start? Well, I feel like we should have some theremin music playing in the background as we come in. (laughs) Well, let's start with you. Oh. Uh, What is your deepest, darkest fear? No, I'm just kidding. What what are you you afraid of, Matana? What am I afraid of? Genuinely, like, always afraid when this happens. Okay. Well, I... So I have a story... Are we good with a story, a real quick story? Yeah. I mean, Lord knows I've told enough here. (laughs) So whenever I was um, probably like an an older child, I want to say like 10 to 14 range, um, we were visiting my grandparents who live on the river in Alabama, the Warrior River. And it's a, you know, it's not a river you can see through very well. It's not like a disgusting river, but it's also, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a small Southern river that it's a muddy river. It's a muddy river. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my grandfather has a pontoon boat. So my brother and cousin and I were all going out on the boat one day, jumped into the water and I had previously watched river monsters. You guys are familiar with the show. I don't know this show. So, so it's basically, I don't even remember it very well, but it's this guy who finds these like really, uh, like just the, the biggest, grossest, scariest creatures to be found in rivers. Oh, it's like a catfishing show. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's uh, and it can get kind of gross and get kind of bloody. You know, it's it's up there in the okay. Yeah. So I had watched that show like maybe a couple days before diving into this river. Why I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it just happened that way. So as soon as I jumped in, like I had this fear just grip me because you can't see what's under you, and like I had all of these pictures of these quite literally river monsters um, that I had pictured and didn't even think about it until I was actually in the water and in the very setting that I had seen all of those, you know, really scary uh, animals in. So that was a moment where I I think I, it was borderline panic (laughs) that I actually had to coax myself and be like, okay, there's nothing to worry about here. You're just like... Wait, you stayed in the water? I stayed in the water. Oh, hardcore. Well, <laughs> I tried. I uh, I had I had two two. I had a brother and a and a guy cousin that I couldn't look. I couldn't look weak, you know. Like I had to had to stay stay strong. Anyway, so wow. um, yeah. So that was probably a moment that I think I think still, if I were to jump in a river, I probably would have to consciously say like, don't think about the river mm. monsters. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I think that's the same thing with a lot of people's fear of the dark. Um, it's that unknown element that all of a sudden like when you hit when you're in the dark or dark water 
you're going to fill in the blanks, right? You're going to like, there's something down there. Um, it's funny. I was always scared of whales for some reason in the ocean. Don't ask me why, but that's what terrified me. The idea that a whale might accidentally like swallow, not like a Jonah thing. You know, I wasn't raised <laughs> with those stories or whatever, but there was a diver, uh, like a couple of years ago, they got swallowed by a whale, uh, got Oof. spit out, but, but by a humpback, I think. Wait a minute. Is, was he alive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. This he, is an actual like modern day Jonah story. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, I did not know about that. Wow. And well, in Jersey Shore, New York City area where I live, um, there's lots of humpbacks and dolphins there now. I mean, you can see them from the the beach or whatever. Huh. So, so yeah, I'm not going wow. to that water. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what darkness, uh, w- watery darkness, or the darkness of night. It reveals to us how our imaginations have been developed because we have Mm. to fill it in with something. So it's not like you imagined an amorphous, like something down in the water. Like you were filling it in with very specific images of very specific. So if anything brushed against your leg, you're thinking, I I know what that thing was, or I I have a vivid image of that in my head. So Mm. So you think it's more actually linked to our imagination than to any like actual evil in the unknown thing? Yeah, but uh, not imagination in the sense of like Willy Wonka, you know, the world of pure imagination, <laughs> but like uh, imagination in the sense that I need to imagine in order to help, um, to uh, make things mm. better or good. So uh, a plumber who walks into a plumbing nightmare, like they have to have a, a well-developed plumbing imagination to figure out like how to mm-hmm. route things or carpenters or counselors, right? They have to might think help somebody through a situation. Uh, so yeah, like imagination being part of our intellectual and spiritual world as mm. well, I guess. That makes sense. So your turn to go in the hot seat. Um, what movies or TV shows would you say like scare you maybe now or in, oh, in now? the past? <laughs> Could be either in the past or now. Now, like stories of failed parenting, movies about failed uh-huh. parenting. I'm like, this is just too real. Uh, it's too uh-huh. close to home. Um, but that's situational. Like, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the, in fact, the Tree of Life. I don't know if you've ever seen the Tree of Life. It's a fantastic retelling of Job in in 1950s Texas. Actually, wow, uh, very powerful movie. A lot of people hate it because it's very long and it has no narrative to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a there's a father in that movie that is just like, ooh, I see too much of myself mm. in that guy, and it's really painful to watch him. But um, when I was a kid, like there was just all these movies, the the horror movies that we talked about, Chains, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Te- Texas, showing up <laughs> a lot here. I just realized, um, Freddy Krueger. I remember Freddy Krueger being like the next level when the Nightmare on Elm Street movies came out. It was like, oh wow, they weren't really. And then Hellraiser with Pinhead, it went even further, and like there were everybody was kind of like the general moral principles of horror movies got removed layer by layer and and worse and worse. But the one that like I probably made me the most afraid of the dark was The Exorcist, uh, which I saw like on a Saturday evening matinee uh, on TV on regular public television or something. Um, and something about that, it was just too, it was too real, it was too scary. You know, it's, it, there was all the lore around it that it was based on a true story, which uh, demonic possession. The the priests were powerless, right? So the very people who carried the empire of God with them and were supposed to be able to couldn't do anything. And so, yeah, that, that one, I don't know why, but at nine or 10 years old, it just hit me just wrong. So, yeah. Hmm. Wow. So what was it, what was it about those shows that really scared you or that convinced you, you were like witnessing evil itself on screen? 
Um, I think like some of the things we've talked about, there was this sense of you don't know why, you know, uh, you know, like it, it, it's unclear why these demons were possessing this little girl, right? She's probably about the same age I was actually in the, in the mm. movie. Uh, that might, I didn't even think about it until now, but like, you didn't know what they wanted. You didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. You didn't know what was going to, what more was going to come, how much worse it was going to get. So there's a lot of just, you, you can't discern a pattern to the madness, which I think a lot of young people are worried about those kinds of things. Um, and then, it just seemed inhumane. Like the very thing that they're trying to do is just that like her body. I don't know if you've ever seen images of the exorcist. I wouldn't necessarily Google it, but like her face is torn up and she's vomiting and her head is spending you know, like 360 degrees. Um, so it's, it's one of these, it's like, it's like uh, a, a torturing somebody from the inside. And I th- and you get images of the, in the gospel as well. Uh, again, the, the Gadarene, the man of the Gadarene tombs, like, you know, he and the kid who's being thrown into the fire. And I mean, it's really like from the inside, they're tearing apart this 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 human. And so I think that tapped deep into this kind of like, not only is it mysterious, but it's torturous and there's really no answer. There's no solution. Nobody has any power. Yeah. Hmm. And the thought of like knowing too that this could like had a kind of a true story angle to oh, yeah. it where it was like, oh, this isn't just fiction made up. Like, what if this actually happened in real life? Yeah, I think I maybe even to this day, but I remember even being up into college and really thinking, like, you know, when I drive to school or whatever, sitting there and thinking about what does it mean when they throw on the based on a true story uh, tag onto a movie? Why does that make a movie seem so much more important? And it, I'm sure it goes back to like The Exorcist, which freaked me out to no end. So, yeah. wow. So, what is it about evil that's so scary? But then I know we've talked about how often our views of bad and evil don't actually line up with our views of good. Like we right. have the problem with evil, but then the problem of good is the other side of that of like, why don't we have a, why don't we have a problem with good whenever we see good? So whenever it comes to evil, like why do we see evil as inherently scary and why do we see good as inherently welcoming and safe? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure a psychologist could do a lot more here. There's been some really good psychiatrists and psychologists who have written on this descent into evil and hate and, um, like what's going on in communities when those kinds of things happen. So I don't, I, I don't have any definitive answers. I think the, at the end of the day, especially as children, and, and maybe it hits harder as children, but you know, at certain periods in child development, like you need a sense of control. They call it agency. Um, you need to, even it, when you do something bad and you get punished for it, a negative consequence reinforces a sense of that you have control over yourself and that and that there are consequences there are direct you know you do this and this happens even if it's negative it, it reinforces to you that the world is rational it's ordered that you can kind of understand what's going on and you can act within those boundaries even if I'm, even if you're like me who chose all the time as a child not to act within boundaries <laughs> um and so that idea that beneficence and goodness and flourishing comes somehow from within that system, like you playing your part in that system, you understanding, you be able to discern the actions of other people. Uh, there's a movie called No Country for Old Men. Again, we're not advising anybody watch these movies, but um, it, it, you know, it's there's this guy who's uh, a, basically a hitman, but he kills all kinds of people through the movie. And the scariest thing about the guy is his eyes are dead, and he seems to have no emotion whatsoever. And he's and it's 
unclear why he kills any person over another. It's just completely uh, random by a passionless psychopath um, who doesn't even get any joy from what he's doing. And so, you know, uh, like visually, as far as horror movies, it's not a horror movie. As far as thrillers, it's not a very good thriller, but it's terrifying just because you can't you can't make any sense of it. So I think for a lot of us that were raised in American media landscape of the movies, television, uh, the books, um, right about that time when we're needing most coherence, agency, the ability to understand what's going on around us, um, we're getting these pieces of media, whether they're movies, television, or music, that are like undercutting some of that. And so I think it probably, maybe it's just my generation, but there's a lot of uh, a sense of a lot of us were scarred by probably watching movies way earlier than we should have. Um, and and that, that just hurts for a long time. So um, I think the, the issue of good then um, becomes entangled in this idea of how much I can understand and how much control I have over the world around me and how I can figure out how to navigate the world around me. And I, I think this is in scripture as well. Um, and then bad is this kind of like mysterious darkness. I can't see what's going on. And it gets mapped onto those color schemes as well. I mean, Jesus was bleached white, right, uh, in the transfiguration. Uh, and darkness and lights is the motif that you get in John. But it's not mapped on the way we use it, where light is purely good and darkness is, is purely bad. I mean, even the lightness and dark motif in John is, and, and Isaiah is really talking about people's understanding. Like they walked in the darkness, which means they didn't see what was around them. It's not because they walked in the darkness and they were afraid of the evil one. It's because they didn't understand what God's plans were. Um, so you hear it coming up again and again. It's like discerning, understanding, acting, uh, having kind of what we call a coherent life. And I think the things that scare us most are the things that completely interrupt our ability to have a coherent life that we can, where we can act and it makes sense in the world. Hmm. That makes sense. Which the empire of God provides. Mm. I mean, that's one of the aims of is to be wise and discerning people. Yeah. Um, kind of gives us a, a, a measuring line, I guess. Yeah. It's the right way to put it. For yeah. That. And it's the one that our culture uses. Yeah. Uh, largely. So speaking of that, um, what does the Bible think about these things like, you know, because God seems incomprehensible um, at times to oh, yeah. us and the idea of like, you know, mentioning light and darkness, light as being having understanding, darkness as being like a limit of understanding. Um, I think, that you know, whenever we think about being afraid of the dark too, that's the thing that's scary is because we don't know what's there. Right. Like there's a level of unknown, lack of agency, um, autonomy that we have in that moment. We're kind of just subject to whatever happens, whatever we don't right. understand. Um, so what does it look like? Like, how do we see God in that sense? Um, what does the Bible think about that? Yeah, so to go back to that, that my chicken little speech, how the, how the biblical authors are doing something completely different. I mean, my friend Jeremiah Unterman, uh, you know, this is one of the things he, he cites as unique to the Hebrew Bible is, Gods don't talk to humans, and certainly gods don't say, like, hey, here's how you need to behave. Like, you need to treat the vulnerable well. You need to bring the poor in them and feed them yourself. You need to allow foreigners to come in and, and join you as a native-born and treat them equally. All of this instruction is laying out parameters by which he will say, and if you don't, I mean, in Exodus 22, if you don't and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and I'll come kill you all. I'll make your wives widows and your children orphans. So it's a hard line that God takes, but it's only a hard line because he's laid out 
beneficent a way that the community can not only uh, be good, but it can flourish and it can flourish for the sake of others that people can join in. It's for the, all the sake of all the families of the earth. Uh, so it's not just a God that talks to humans, but he instructions, he lays out expectations and he holds them to those expectations. You look in the ancient world, they had gods who had expectations. They had gods who would punish them. They just had no idea why the gods were punishing them. I mean, there's lots of laments in Egypt and some in Mesopotamia where they're just going, why have you, why have the fates gone against me? Like, what have I done? And, you know, a guy counseling his friend just saying, just give more offerings to all the gods. Just cover your bases, right? Who knows which one you've offended? And so the fact that God speaks so clearly and holds Israel to account for her behaviors is actually like, you know, chief sign of graciousness in that world. Um, so he, it also means um, in the biblical logic, you are supposed to be afraid. You know, like when it comes to God of the Bible, be afraid, be very afraid, uh, as they say in horror movies. Um, but you have boundaries within which, you know, you have reverence and awe for him as a creator and the one who loves us. But then, you know, if I mistreat this vulnerable person over here, I actually need to be afraid of what God is going to think about what I'm doing over here. Uh, and that's a strong tradition in the Christian uh, tradition as well. Um, and me and my daughters were talking the other day about why guys sometimes mistreat women uh, in all kinds of ways, like why they assault them, why they catcall them, why they, you know, groom them or whatever. And, you know, women can do all of these things as well. But why why do guys do it? And, and, and as the only guy in the car at the time, I was just like, Honestly, I think 99% of it is they think they, can, they think nobody's watching. They can get away with it, right? And so they, they do stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Um, and the message of Scripture is like, no, there actually is a God who sees all of your action, and he's watching, and he made a deal with the whole nation, but he made it with you individually as well, and you're going to be held to account for uh, what happens here. So, so be afraid. Be very afraid of the right person. <laughs> yeah. So it's not. it's actually not a fear of the unknown it's a fear of the fact that we have we have been made aware yes <laughs> we we have <laughs> the knowledge therefore yeah. yeah yeah and this is um as we've talked about before this is cs lewis's great line uh, in the line the witch in the wardrobe is you know is aslan uh say i think it's lucy asks, is aslan is he safe and he's like no 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 he's not safe but uh, but he's good right and so it's that idea that we should have some reverence for the power of god um, because of what he's revealed to us. Mm. Hmm. That's good. So what else do people in the Bible fear that maybe they fear differently than we do? Or maybe they even have a different kind of prioritization <laughs> scale of things to be afraid of. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that question, uh, the immediate thing that comes to mind is Abraham and Isaac, who do something skeezy with their wives. They hand over their wives uh, sexually, but they specifically say, because I thought there was no fear of God in this land. Um, and so there is this kind of sense of like, when people don't fear God, it can, it can go haywire for all kinds of reasons, you know, that you'll, you'd be willing to kill a man because you thought his wife was beautiful just so you could have her. Um, so I, I think people feared famine. People, I mean, people feared like, starving to death, not having enough water, uh, being infertile, that, the, that their line, their family name, and their, their lineage would die with them, um, but they wanted to live long in the land. So they had like all the normal existential fears that we have, but probably better reasons for being afraid of those things. Um, 
But they also, you know, what they weren't, what they were not afraid of is demons or spirits or like there, there's, I feel like the spiritual realm in 1980s Christianity to today has become like taken part in the horror movie industry. Like, you know, the horror movie industry has basically developed our imagination of the spiritual realm. Um, so that when, you know, when I tell people, yeah, nobody in the Bible is, is really scared of demons at all, ever. Uh, most people are surprised. I was surprised. Well, maybe, maybe other people aren't. I was surprised when I first realized this, right? Mm-hmm. I think, well, why aren't they afraid of that? And I think answers can come forward, but um, demons are a problem to be dealt with, but they're not necessarily something to be terrified of. And, and certainly, I don't know about you, but when I think of like, demon- I just hear the word demonic, and I, it's, it's like a different level. Yeah, yeah. It's like bringing up, I mean, I have a friend on Twitter, a colleague of mine, who's like, when people do really horrible crimes, you know, like really vicious crimes, he's like, this is demonic, you know? And I think he's exactly that, trying to say, this is worse than bad. It's worse than evil. Like, it pushes in this other realm. Um, so we have all of these feels that we get with, like, satanic and demonic um, that don't seem to be there in the biblical authors, the way they're thinking about these things. Uh, now, am I saying like none of these people were, you know, if they were demon possessed, they, that didn't freak them out at all, or they weren't afraid of it. No, but their concern was really for the health and well-being of the individual who's possessed. That mm-hmm. seems to be the focus. Uh, and, and that there's, there is no power that can help them out. They're powerless in this situation. And so when Jesus comes around, the first thing they notice about him is he has the power over the winds, the seas, mm-hmm. leprosy, and now also demons. Wow. So. Yeah. Hmm. So how does scripture teach us to feel about spiritual warfare? Like what is what does spiritual warfare actually look like in light of this? And I know a lot of different Christian traditions have different beliefs about this and different understandings about spiritual warfare and being a, a a prayer warrior in the sense of engaging in spiritual warfare and as much as we can as a human being who follows Jesus. Um, So kind of taking ourselves away from like the different interpretations and traditions around this, what does, what does scripture as itself say about that topic? Um, I mean, I think there is a sense in spiritual warfare. I mean, you, you know, when the disciples report to Jesus, Hey, we couldn't cast this demon out. He says, Oh, this one only comes out by prayer and some, some of the ancient manuscripts add, and fasting as well there. So that might be original to the text. Um, but he's, he's highlighting there, like, there are certain practices you have to have in order to make certain things happen in the spiritual realm. Um, I, th- I think uh, without touching spiritual warfare in particular, the American versions of it, or even, you know, again, in Africa, you have very specific uh, Pentecostal African, Sub-Saharan African versions of spiritual warfare, we can say something like, look, people have uh, developed wisdom practices, even within scripture, that you petition God for help. Uh, when Jesus comes and seems to have power, I will note, whether people knew that Jesus was God, the son of God himself or not, I, I think that's like, it, I think it's doubtful that most of the people knew he was the son of God. But notice the uh, centurion when he approaches or his emissary approaches Jesus, depending on which gospel you're in. He reasons with them and he says, well, I'm a man who has power, has authority over people. And I tell people to go and they go. And, and I recognize that you too are a man that has authority over these demons. And you tell them to go and they go. So for them, it really is a power play. Like they want agency. They want to have a coherent life where these things that they don't know what they want or why they're doing these things to their children or to their brothers 
um, they want them gone. They want them out of there. It's like a pack of you know feral pigs, if you want a Texas example, right? Uh, they're just like, what do you guys want? You just destroy everything in your path, right? You don't seem to have any coherent narrative to what you're doing. And they're like, we're pigs. Demons, uh, same thing. We want uh, – they wanted these people out. I think – uh, if I can read a little bit from Colossians, and this will be a non-obvious answer to your question of what spiritual warfare is, but I think Paul is getting at the basis of what spiritual warfare has to look like, which I think will include, like, look, if I thought somebody was being, like, really attacked by demonic forces, like they're really being oppressed or bothered in some way, or I thought something was just not right— I'd have everybody I know praying, right? That's That would be my first line of defense. Um, but here he talks about Christ, and he's talking to the – this is Colossians 2, uh, 6 and following, and it's really f- small print. So even with my glasses, I'm going to have to struggle here a little bit. But, um, but he's talking about basically – You've been established, right? Like you've been planted here. Like, so let me resituate your view of the universe. He says, therefore, you have, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the trust of him, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. And in him, you were circumcised with the circumcision, not without hands, but by the putting off of the body of flesh, but the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through trust in the powerful working of God." Who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, this, you know, this is the final bit here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, you know, this is typical Paul in his shorter epistles, even Romans. It's just like everything is in Christ. He has all power and all authority. You know, even submit to rulers and authorities, even unjust ones, because ultimately they all work for God. Um, So there's really this uh, don't be caught up. I mean, when he talks about the elemental, you know, the spirits of this world, I think today he would say like this a lot of spiritualism that gets floated out there, a lot of spiritual warfare and spiritual life. I think some of it would have to be nailed to the cross, as it were, in Paul's thinking, like, is this really what was going on in his day? And where does he put their hope? He's like, Jesus is above all of these things. Nobody's scared of demons. And when they go out in the name of Christ, demons flee. Now, I have friends who work uh, in places around the world who say it's not always that simple. I have friends uh, who are demonologists who work here in the United States who are like, even here, it's not always that simple. Um, but that is the over overriding, abounding message across Scripture is um, – Demons are afraid of Jesus, and they're afraid of everybody he sends. And then there's some really stubborn ones that he has to get out with prayer and fasting. But that, I would put that on the mysterious, like, I'm not sure what's going on there, but kind of puts a check in, like, and we don't have the solutions to all of this here and now. So spiritual warfare actually looks very much to me like um, 
praying and being confident that uh, everything that we have has been given to us in Jesus, and it's all going to be corrected in the new heavens and new earth. In the meantime, it's going to be a little bit messy. Um, I don't know what to say beyond that without seeking the advice of my friend. Like, if I thought someone was demon-possessed, which I'm not saying it can't happen, I, I have not yet experienced that. I have friends who have experienced it in other places and some who have experienced it in the United States. Um, but if I thought that was actually going on, I would absolutely go to the people who've like worked in that. Uh, and I'd be like, help, help me think through this. Cause I have friends who've thought through this more clearly than I have on scripture. Um, but Paul here is talking really about like, what do you give into? And he's like, it's all been, you, you've been baptized with him. You've been buried in baptism. You've been raised with him. He has all power. You have that power too. So almost like a, I mean, the feeling, like the, the tenor of the letter is kind of like, don't worry about it, right? It's kind of like, hey, we, we've got this. We've got Christ. You don't need to worry about that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. That's a lame answer. I mean, <laughs> not having a lot of experience. I, I have experience. So. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of experience praying for people who are deeply distressed, praying mm-hmm. for people who feel like they're being like something's not right in, yeah. their, you know, in their spiritual life or their headspace or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and I'm, you know, even for me personally, I have. I've been in certain settings and in moments where I've actually witnessed some some pretty intense like spiritual warfare moments. It's like a very, very clear outward, um, for lack of a better term, like manifestation of something that's definitely demonic. And it's definitely like not an easy thing to sort out. Right. <laughs> How did, you know, like... It's not something that's very clear. At least it's not to me. And I think that there are a lot of experts who would be able to say, like, actually, there are there's categories for this. There's ways to deal with it. There's ways to address it. So I'm thankful for those people for sure. Yeah, but, I have a friend who did his PhD on demonology, and uh, he's actually a sheriff's deputy, and and he just says like. When I deal with some, you know, he deals with a lot of drug addicts uh, and the problems that come for them on the streets. And he said, but sometimes, like, it's clearly not drugs is not the issue. Like, the behavior, and it's not mental health. He's like, it feels like there's something else. He's like, so I just ask him directly, um, do, you know, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And he goes, and I watch their response. And if, it, if, like, if, they, if they respond in a certain way, then I think it might be a demon. Uh, he actually separates out demon oppression from demon possession. Mm-hmm. So he would say... Christians uh, aren't necessarily the ones who are possessed, uh, like you see in Scripture, because you have the Spirit dwelling within you. But he would say, but certainly they can be oppressed, they can be demonized, they can be harassed. Um, yeah, but I, you know, and I think also, um, you know, I tell my students if you hear voices, it's like ninety-nine out of a hundred out of you know, or ninety-nine point nine 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 percent. It's a mental health issue. You need to go get it looked at, and that's what it usually is: it's bipolar, schizophrenia. If you like, have these things that some people might naively associate with spiritual issues. Um, not to say that mental health issues aren't spiritual as well, but like they think it might be a demon, or or usually they think it's God talking to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say, "Oh no, that's your schizophrenia, or that's your bipolar," uh, and you can get help for that. Um, but that should always be part of, of the question: is is this a mental health issue? Because even even in Jesus' day, they they could distinguish mental health issues from demon mm, possession. They're making yeah. those line calls. So it's interesting, kind of going back to your comment about Gnosticism. Whenever we separate like the spirit from the body, um, it's interesting. You're basically saying like 
take a holistic approach, yeah. like body, soul, spirit. Like yeah, biblical thinking. authors don't know how to separate those into yeah. different things. So yeah, I'm not even sure if the New Testament authors could separate the the soul from the body at death. Like that's still an open question for me whether they can whether they think that's going on or not. Uh, but certainly they think it's all together while we're alive and animated. Um, and so yeah, anything demonic is going to always penetrate those layers of soul body. Uh, anything going on. So, but it requires, I, we should just start calling it the D word, discernment, right? Yeah. Uh, careful, careful discernment. Mm-hmm. I think the, I think the real, like the great part of this conversation for me uh, is that whatever we do, it involves getting in and helping people who are, who are hurting in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so any spiritual warfare that's just basically like, well, let me, let me just go to my prayer. Like, Good luck with that. I'll pray for you. Uh, then that to me is not yeah. that's not the real deal. Hmm. So it's interesting too. It's like no matter no matter what kind of a you know demonic situation it may be, whatever it is, like the response is like going back to the scripture you read in Colossians, like in Christ, Jesus is is the way to address it. Whether it's like whatever it is, it's in him. Yeah. Focusing on like not a like maybe there is some level of demonic activity that needs to be addressed, but it's never to be feared, and it's always to be addressed right. through Jesus. Through it might Christ. freak you out. Yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> but I get freaked out by things I see on the subway all the time. So, <laughs> like being freaked out is just means you're living in the real world. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Good to know. So, last question before we end this yeah. episode has been super interesting conversation. Um, kind of going back to. Uh, where we started talking about movies and different ways that we can see, um, see like that we f- feel fear through uh, through evil that we experience in pop culture, movies, things like that. I'm curious if there are any examples of movies that you feel like properly explore the depths of evil in a biblical sense that you think are good examples of the way the Bible thinks about evil. Um, yeah, and actually, I usually say because I have students all because like New York City, I don't know what it is about New York, but students come in and they're like, I think my roommate's demon possessed. Like that's a very really? yeah, not I shouldn't say standard. It's happened more than six times oh. <laughs> <laughs> at least. Um, and so I always say like, let's just start with normal brokenness, like mm-hmm. just the normal way we're all fractured, broken, and how we relate to each other, and possible background issues and mental health issues, and then if we can't explain most of it that way, then let's start thinking about something else. Um, and uh, that that usually does it. Um, but yeah, so I think, actually, I think a lot of the most popular television shows in the last 20 years have actually been exploring the, the normal brokenness of humanity and how bad it can get. So starting with, I'm sure there's other ones before this, but the one I think of is The Sopranos. I think The Wire as well. They're all like cop, cops and robbers, good and bad guys, right? Um the Wire, The Sopranos, and again, I can't advise anybody watches these. Um, <laughs> but but it is, like the main character of The Sopranos is a mob boss who's a horrible. What I mean, he's just a horrible person who does like the worst things imaginable to his own family and to other people. Um, but he's the main character, and you like love him. Like you just grow so fond of him as a person, and you realize that you're supposed to hate him at, at, at the same time. But what they're really doing is like putting you right over his shoulder and saying. Do you see the depths of sin this guy is spinning himself into? Breaking Bad is another one. Better Call Saul is another one because he's like, he's just a lawyer. So all the bad stuff he's doing is just legal bad stuff. But it's, I mean, I shouldn't say it's not just legal, uh, but it's got all kinds of problems. Mad Men, it's just advertising agency. Like you're like, so what? He's an advertiser. 
But you see how like drinking and um, sleeping around and the narrative he's telling himself, it's so topsy-turvy and upside down. It's really sickening. So mm-hmm. if you ever thought like drinking whiskey and smoking was cool, just watch like two seasons of Mad Men and like you're sick to your stomach because they're like <laughs> they're drinking from like 10 a.m. until midnight and smoking. It's like disgusting. But uh, Breaking Bad to Get Shorty, which has a great female. The cartel boss is a female, and she's like, you know, doing all the worst things that men do. Um, but what they're doing is exploring the descent. And so they, you either start with this person who's just like a horrible, horrible person doing all the worst things that humans do, like the very, very worst things humans do. Um, and they work their way back to help explain to you how this person became that way, or or you begin like Breaking Bad. It begins with him. He's a chemistry teacher, and you see how does a chemistry teacher, and eventually his wife as well, become murderous and ravenous, and uh, and you'll have to watch it if you want to see if he gets redeemed in the end. Um, also, a book we talked about, East of Eden, uh, a classic novel that does this as well. It explores the. Um, the depths of stupidity and evil, like the man, the man is kind of dumb. Uh, I mean, he's he's naive, and the woman is like a, a woman that we would say, like, oh, she's pure evil. But then, as you go further into her backstory, you realize, oh, okay, well, sh- she is messed up, but there's like there's some reasons going on back there as well. And I I think now again, some of these shows are not appropriate for a lot. I mean. Depending on your sensitivities and you know whether you think it's appropriate for you spiritually, I mean, some of them you might just want to stay away from. Yeah. But what they're not afraid to do is to really think about all the very ordinary, common variety ways in which we sink into corruptions that don't just hurt ourselves. I mean, that's the key to all these shows. You see the corruption proliferate. It's cancerous. It metastasizes throughout the entire – anything they touch uh, becomes hurt or murdered or twisted in some way. Um, and so I think that's an important – to me, this is what the prophets are yelling at Israel, going, do you not – you think you're just doing this little thing over here, but do you not see how it's crushing the poor? Do you not see how this hurts God and therefore hurts you? Mm. So, wow. Well, well, thank you for that. Um, that's really helpful just, I think, to kind of tangibly see how that works. Also, you mentioned just a second ago, like, thinking of evil as cancerous, how it – again – begins as like a good mm-hmm. cell. It's a good, healthy, right, doing what it's supposed to do. Um, and then it it kind of devolves from that. So I think it's interesting just to kind of go back to that original conversation of what evil is and isn't um, and how it shows up here. So really interesting. Um, so do you have any closing thoughts on this topic before we end this conversation and prep for our next conversation, which is going to be interesting it's called <laughs> the next next topic is what, why does god do evil i think this is something that we've all yeah. kind of been waiting for <laughs> alluding to Which, throughout this when whole. we <laughs> talked about building these episodes we we're like yeah we can't put that anywhere near the front because <laughs> it's too shocking ease in yes. wait in slowly yeah so we're going there next episode but before we do do you have any closing thoughts um, I, I think what's really important so now we're talking about good and evil and mainly evil in these last couple episodes but the we're talking about evil. We're really saying we, we need a robust imagination of how evil develops in people. And without that, we'll miss all the warning signs. And we'll, we'll, we'll think something like, oh, yeah, they went to college and worked their tail off. And now they got this job in an investment bank and they're working their tail off. And, yeah, they're partying every night, but their boys will be boy, You know, that kind of stuff. And, and we say, no, 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 no. 
I can see exactly how this line, this ritualized life that this person is entering will lead to proliferatingly horrible effects for everything around them in the future. Um, and it can, it can all look innocuous. It can all look like traditional American success path. Uh, or it could, you know, the opposite where, I mean, just to be bluntly obvious, uh, honest, um, some of the the people in a church uh, that I used to work at, some people that they would look at them and go, oh, they're so humble and meek. And I'm like, oh, no, they, they have learned how to play that game. But when you scratch the surface a little bit, there's a really angry, bitter person there as well. That, that evil has been fostered, but they've learned to put on the veneer that everybody wants. Um, so we have to have an imagination that's developed by reality. Uh, and to see how these things foster so that we can just train ourselves so that we can be on the lookout for the sake of other people so that we can – like the, the community can't flourish if you have a naive view of like, hey, let's just all go out there and do good. Mm-hmm. You know, Nothing good is going to come from that. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the biblical authors want to remind us early and often about that. Yeah, like the shepherd, the shepherd who can see like the, the wolf in sheep's clothing to Absolutely. use a biblical Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Cool. Well, thank you guys for joining us for another episode of Discover Your Roots for season two. Uh, We will be back with episode six very soon. Thanks for listening to season two of Discover Your Roots, the problem of good and evil. To find more resources like this, subscribe to our newsletter at passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, That's passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media and learn more about Israel and the Bible at Passages Israel. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.